John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you gonna do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporland's interchangeable cartridge style Type Q and Type BQ uh, TEVs. Type Q is a conventional design and Type BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy as one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those into a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. We've all been there in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporland, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Corel, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're the host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass, coming live from Atlanta, Georgia at the AHR Expo. How you doing, Kev? Uh, not too bad. A little tired. You enjoying yourself here in, in, in sunny, kind of sunny Georgia? It's cold. <laughs> but no, it's, it's not too bad here. It's just a lot to take in. There's a lot. I think we only got like a, through like probably about half of it yesterday. 
Dude, this place is just freaking just huge. There, there's, there's so many halls. I was talking to a guy yesterday. He was walking around. He was like, yeah, I made it around B. I was like, you were here all day. He's like, yeah, I just kept going in a circle. Just There's just so many things to see here, man. There's so many manufacturers here. Nidex here. Of course, uh, you know, Parker Sporland's here. Westermeyer's here. Uh, Corel's here. Man, there's so many different different manufacturers here and, and, and so many good uh, good classes to take while you're here. There's the podcast pavilion you guys can you can scope out and check out. Man, it's 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 just it's a blast, man. So Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot going on here. We both lost our rental car for almost an hour yesterday. <laughs> I ended up in the other side of a parking deck somewhere and uh, apparently there's three red parking garages here and uh, yeah, he found his in about 40 minutes. It took me about an hour and 10 to find mine. This is uh, massive. Like, this is way bigger than I'm used to, like, in Chicago. Well, that, well, that's the other thing. Like, I, like I, I kept asking someone. I was like, hey, you know, can, can I just, uh, you know, can you tell me where the diamond garage is? And he's like, yeah, over this way, over this way. And he sent me in the total opposite direction. So I'm, you know, walking around like an asshole trying to figure out where the freak my car is. And, you know, I, I was like, before I left, I was like, I need to take a picture. I need to take a picture so I remember where the hell I'm at. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I was in a rush yesterday to get in, and I just totally spaced. And yeah, I took a picture, but uh, it was of a red parking garage with a number three on it. And uh, that was actually in the orange garage, level three, you know, red level. Which is awesome because it could have been the ruby one. It could have been the red one. Yeah, I mean... Not not cool, but um, today we're going to talk about uh, CO2 charge management and uh, loss reduction. So kind of a weird topic, but the way we're going to talk about it is uh, detecting leaks, leak detection, mitigating uh, uh, charge loss events, and uh, dealing with, uh, you know, leaks that are you know, hard to find. So first and foremost, guys, the majority of the time when you're losing charge in these CO2 racks is usually when they shut down. Whether they you have oil failures, you have power outages, I mean, that, that's when you're getting your, your refrigerant losses. And unfortunately, those are kind of hard to, you know, stop because, I mean, if you have a situation where you lose power and you don't have a backup generator or a backup unit, you're kind of screwed. So... That's where, you know, having your reliefs tested and knowing that they're not popping early. We had a situation a couple weeks ago where we had a vessel uh, relief popping at 575. So we had some issues where um, some valves were kind of lagging and the suction control was kind of lagging, and it was popping the vessel randomly. So it would get up to like 550, 565. I mean, you got to remember, these are mechanical reliefs. So it was popping like almost 100 pounds early. So my my question is to you. So like when I did industrial, like every every so many years, you basically had to either get the valve recertified, or uh, or or just change it out, you know, and, and get it rebuilt and then have it sent back. As you know, because you've been doing CO2 longer than I have, have you seen that happen? Like have you guys been actually doing that? No, but uh, here's my thing: if we have a bunch of power outages in a row, and I know the relief pop for the for the vessel, mm -hmm. it's getting replaced. Gotcha. Because what happens is, after it pops so many times, it gets weak. Yeah. So, especially the discharge reliefs. If a discharge relief went off a bunch of times, it's getting replaced. Awesome. You, usually they receive, but the, the discharge reliefs get weaker faster than the, uh, the reliefs on the flash tank. The flash tank reliefs are usually uh, R410A reliefs. 
so that they're usually readily available at a supply house. So they're a lot cheaper. So, I mean, those getting replaced, I mean, to me, is just cheap insurance. Yeah, agreed. To, to keep it from, you know, popping early or getting weak. Now, those those loss of charge events, I mean, you're pretty much not going to be able to avoid the power outages unless the, your customer installed a generator with a backup unit. I was going to say, how many how many of those units have you seen? Because, like, when, I, when I, we first started seeing, you know, obviously Texas didn't get transcritical literally until this year. Uh, but before it was it was mostly all subcritical cascade uh, liquid pump overfeed and like I, I've seen you know when it first started come out I saw a lot of you know auxiliary condensing units you know and essentially if you don't know how those work basically you have a high pressure switch on whatever whatever part of the system that they're trying to just keep the pressure down on so on a, on a subcritical system right they they keep it on the vessel and they're trying to mitigate that pressure to make sure it doesn't pop off in relief. Do you see a lot of them up in Chicago where you at? The, the only customer that I've ever seen put them in is Costco. Really? That is it. They, they are the only customer I've ever seen put a generator in and a backup unit. Yeah, because sometimes I've seen them installed, but like they'll have, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll won't have them on a generator. They'll have them on the actual store power. I'm like, well, what what's that going to do? I mean, it's still it's still there for if the rack goes down, if yeah. you lose oil. I mean, that's still there. But, yeah, if you lose power, you're pretty much screwed. Costco does it right, though. They have four dedicated backup units on four de uh, on a dedicated generator that it's all ready to go. They get tested once a week. Damn. So, you know, they know if, if they're if they're low on gas, if they're not cooling properly, but like that's that's the way to do it. Yeah, so they're constantly making sure they don't lose that charge. Yeah. I mean so the other way guys is test and suction reliefs. Like on PMs, like I try to get the suction like fifty to seventy five pounds over what it should be just to make sure these reliefs aren't tripping. I've seen way too many suction reliefs that trip like hundred pounds under what they should be. So especially on the low temp, they, they get they get exercise more than they should because I mean of staging the way the staging set up in some of these controllers, sometimes you hit the low 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 temp uh, reliefs. So I mean the low temp reliefs and the flash tank reliefs are generally the ones that are going to blow first. What are the so I know the flash tank ones typically about 650, right? 650 ish. Yeah. Okay. I mean the low temps usually are about 400 to 450. Yeah, yeah. I've seen like 435. Like I've seen yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I generally try to get those up a little bit, like get them up around 300 pounds, make sure they're not going to trip. Okay. So test those that way. The medium temp same way. Get it up. You know. 75 to 100 pounds over what it should be and what you're just shutting off compressors yeah, or what just shutting off compressors just, just are, are you pumping down the system and, and no. just letting it rise natural or are just, you just just shutting them down and then i'll start them back up okay just just to do a quick check on them to make sure that they're not like popping randomly because i've had a bunch of these the other thing is we've had a bunch of these we get missed we end up putting balloons on the reliefs it's a smart way to do it then you know that if it actually pops you know what i mean yes i mean putting balloons in the reliefs is like key for for co2 i mean especially with how many relief events we you have on, on occasion having that balloon there is you know that's your definite proof that that relief went off i mean they're not putting uh uh i forget i always forget what they're called uh condoms no oh, okay the what are those uh the that all the racks have in between the relief and the uh, the relief manifold. Oh, the 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 uh, the, the uh, indicator. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it's not called that, but like it's a uh, uh, rupture disc. Snap disc. Ru Snap yeah. disc. Rupture disc. Yeah, so yeah, that's it. They aren't putting rupture discs on the these. Sporland booth. We probably fucking asked somebody, huh? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so they are putting rupture discs on these. Yeah. So you're not going to know when they pop off unless unless you put a balloon there. Yeah. And uh, you know test it that way. And if you have like a manifold style, like a Hill Phoenix rack, where it's all manifolded together. I just we just get a bigger balloon and we put it on the outside of the manifold. <laughs> we we had we have a we had a store in, in, in Dallas and like if you it, you know whenever it would rain it lose power whenever it would wind it would lose power it was just it, it just had the shittiest power ever and and so like constantly there was just there was literally you know right where usually all the files are for all the rack shit it literally just a stack of balloons in there because it, you know it would just constantly you go there up oh, it pops you know. Where'd the refrigerant go? Well, where the hell do you think it went? You know, power sucks. Yeah, I mean, then now let's talk about the other side of it, the leak side. Now, CO2 leak detection has, it's increasingly become more difficult. So It's gotten better, but go ahead. So let me just start off by saying, so typically, so CO2 leak detection is a little bit more difficult than typical regular leak detection. And the only reason why is because CO2 in the air is typically anywhere from three to 400 parts per million. If you're in like a classroom or an office area, it'll be anywhere as high as 600 to 800. So, you know, unless you're in a rack room all by your lonesome, I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it's hard to kind of mitigate like, well, did someone breathe in my general vicinity or, or is it just, do I have a fucking leak somewhere, right? Yeah, I mean, in all of the leak detectors, it doesn't matter who the brand is, they're zeroing out to what they think is a zero it's not a true zero. So, I mean, that's where you, you become into this issue with, you could have a building that is so saturated with CO2 that the leak detector doesn't work right. Very true. Well, well, hold on, let me ask you a question. Before you tell the story, did you start up the leak detector outside before you brought it inside? We tried both. Yeah? And it's still, and it's still, it, it, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we tried both. And what happened was the building was so saturated, it was, it was falsing out. It was making the sensor uh, freak out, and it was sending false signals basically to the to the leak detector, and, and it wasn't going off. I got you, you. You would get a hit every once in a while. I mean, we had a I mean a nail through a suction line. <laughs> you said and, it was, you said it was a set of trim nails. Yeah. So how how first off how long were the trim nails, and where the hell was this pipe going through? So it was in a wall, and it was after startup. It was like a month after startup, they put this faux Joanne Gaines shiplap wall up. And uh, the guy doing the wall, he started at the bottom with like two-inch nails. By the time he got to the top, they were like three-inch trim nails. And What the hell was he putting up? Like, it was just like... A Picasso? Hardwood floor, like, on a wall. Like, you know, that Joanne Gaines, you know, ruin everybody's weekend thing? <laughs> yeah. So they were putting that up, and the guy nailed the suction line at four places, but only one went through. And you, and you said you, you guys didn't find it for a bit until it, what happened? You guys it shut was it like down, right? It was like two weeks. We, we had to shut it down to do something else, and it blew the nail up. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's, your, there's your advanced refrigeration podcast hint. If you ever can't find a CO2 leak, just shut down the system for a little bit, maybe a nail or a screw up. <laughs> Well, I mean, I leak checked this. This, I mean, it was an inner wall. Like I leak checked this, this, this line going in here, like four different times, myself, and, and like three other people did too, and none of us got a hit. Gotcha. And it ended up being because the building was so saturated, and it just not so happened that the leak detector inside the building was bad, 
So, I mean, besides bad practices of, you know, like, you know, leaks or uh, starting up, like as far as, you know, doing doing the evacuation properly and all that other shit, what are you, what are you seeing out there that's giving a lot of people shit? Uh, transducers, this is a huge thing, is so all these transducers come loose, okay, and everybody thinks you can't pull vacuums on them. Emerson, Microthermal, all those ones you can pull vacuums on. I'm not sure about Danfoss, but I always pressurize and pull vacuums on all of my uh, all of my transistors like I have them all installed I've seen way too many guys go put them on after they pulled vacuums and did did that and then they have small leaks everywhere you hear that Andre I told you pressure transducers a guy called me up the other day he's like man I've been pulling on this rack for almost two weeks now I don't know how big the rack is um, I mean it, you know it he does he, you know Andre works on industrial you know, for the most part, he works on ammonia, but you know, occasionally, you know, they've been doing a lot of, lot of, you know, CO2 starting up here, and he was called, he called me up. He's like, yeah, I'm only at like 14,000, and and uh, you know, we had they haven't found the leak yet. I'm like, uh, start isolating shit, because I was like, do you are you isolated? Because so when you pull a vacuum, you know, like I had to think like I, I would pull separate vacuums, right? I'd pull a vacuum on the on the case side. I'd pull no, no you pull, pull all at once. System. Yep. Okay. I start isolating it once once it's not, you know, once I realize there's, it's not doing what I want it to do, yeah. I start isolating it. But, like, I pull on the entire system. But but not for two weeks. Like, after... Oh, I, God, I, no. After, like, 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 four hours, if it's not getting down to where I want, yeah. like, I'm, I'm pulling on the entire... Or I'm going to start isolating it. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I told him, because he called me. He's like, do you know where it would leak on, you know, a lot of rack stuff? I'm like... Kevin says almost every single rack that he's ever gotten in has, has had a transducer. Also, packing. Yep. Packing on valves is one of the like one of the worst ones. So I was doing a training thing uh, over over in in Texas somewhere, and we were talking about the rack. We were going over this LMP rack, and as I'm going through it, I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, here's the liquid injection. As soon as I muttered the word liquid injection, all of a sudden there was a white cloud that started spouting out above, and they're like, did you do that on purpose? I'm like, yes, I'm a wizard. No, but like, so the packing was just, you know, just super loose. So that's one of the things you should be checking as well when you're doing, you know, when you're initially doing, you know, doing all your checks, making sure your valves are open, tighten those packings back up to make sure that you're not going to get anything through to make sure that your vacuum goes a lot smoother. So like my big thing is uh, on the transistor installs, I want them Teflon taped and nylogged, and then I want the packings tightened up, and then I want the caps tightened up because I don't want to have to go back through and open packed angle valves or we're doing startup and there's a packed angle valve not open and then we got something flooding back like really hard also make sure that you're using two wrenches on every single freaking thing that you're touching i'm not gonna lie there's times i don't uh, like okay don't listen to what he just said always use two 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 wrenches on every single valve that you're doing because that one day that you don't you're gonna break something off and now that you're dealing with these higher pressures you're gonna have a bad day Hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries Serviceable Oil Floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it. With their new line of serviceable oil floats, these floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency, and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field proven in supermarket applications. Westmeyer Industries 
offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross-compatible models for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. Yeah, I mean, uh, getting all the transistor packed angle valves and uh, a lot of uh, the rack ones. So when you start getting into like the high pressure stuff and the stainless, make sure you're using the right tape. So if you have like a stainless uh, fitting where it's going into, you need to use stainless tape. And you need to use everything on the high side. We use, uh, we no longer use Nylog. We use uh, Permabond. Permabond's a pipe dope, basically. It's a high-performance, like, uh, high-pressure pipe dope. You can get it at United has it, uh, Illinois Supply, like, where we, we are has it. I mean, any, any like, large piping supply place will, will have pipe, uh, Permabond. And, and the Permabond, what, what's different? What's, what makes it different than some of the other stuff? It's just a higher, it, it's, it's a higher-quality, uh, you know, pipe bond. Don't use a lot of it because it will crack a fitting. Really? If you if you shove a bunch of permabond into the threads, and you crank down on it, it'll split a fitting. See, that's what I was gonna ask. So, like, I've always been, like, as long as I've been doing refrigeration, the guy that taught me, um, you know, I it was just regular thread tape, uh, and then I would just I use Loctite 515 or 516, depending if it was high temp or medium temp. So then that way, then you have the you have the thickness of the actual tape. And then you have, the, you know, the lubricant, which then then seals, you know, as you go in. But you said that permabond should actually break it. So if you if you put too much on there, like that permabond stuff's so thick, it'll it'll crack a fitting. But using stainless tape is, is very important. You because you can't use like the Blue Monster Teflon tape on stainless fittings. You have to use you have to use stainless rated tape, or else it's or Teflon, or else it's not going to seal right. Really? Yes. And usually, like, Hill Phoenix will send that out with the racks. They'll send out, like, two or three bottles of Permabond and, like, stainless tape. But I, we only use it on the high side stuff. Here's the thing about Permabond. It's a lot like it's a lot like the blue goo. It'll get everywhere, and then it's also very hard to get off. So use it sparingly and don't use it on everything. So it's the equivalent of, like, you know, the pain in the ass of RTV sealant, like, for, like, like, like smoke pipe and shit. You know yeah, what I mean? I mean, just, just you know... You don't need a, you don't need to glue got you know glob it on all, all over like stuff like like some guys do just a little bit on the threads and seal it in and then on the high side stuff make sure you guys get it nice and tight and everything's good I mean high side transistors usually are the ones we see leak the most usually it's not the case ones it's usually the high side stuff on the rack so just make sure that those are all good any flexible hoses Make sure that like they're not going to be anywhere with the vibrating. I mean, we're using VFDs for the compressors on there, so we're going to have bearing-induced, you know, har- harmonics. So, uh, just make sure that nothing's going to rub against each other. Like, I'll go buy rubber hose and cut it, and I'll sleeve any like uh, pressure cont- control hoses where they're going to rub against, and make sure that like they're not going to rub out. Like brake line, You're using brake line for it. Not really brake line, like rubber hose. Like I'll get, I'll go to like an auto store and get a rubber hose and stuff. Oh, okay. Just, All right. Just so I could sleeve it and I'll zip tie it. So that way it's got a little more protection. So if it were to rub out, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't completely blow the charge. And then the next thing is, so we've had a lot of cracked lines. 
and this has been an ongoing issue for the last six, seven years, and you can't always find them on, on startup. Sometimes you got to get through all the conditions. So when well, you oh, hold on, when you say crack lines, are you talking vertical or horizontal, like where it's actually going through with like with with the it, flow of the pipe? Or? It doesn't matter. It's, it's either or. Okay. So what it ends up being is um, VFDs and compressors, especially recent compressors, they get a harmonic induced vibration. So certain compressors, usually it's like 46 to like 47 hertz. It's like usually one I delete out of all of them because generally in my experience, like that, that hertz range on medium temp compressors on the TC side just vibrates like a, you know, old car. So what you want to do is like, you need to test this and you need to go hertz by hertz. You know, go like one hertz at a time up and down till you find where this vibration starts and stops. And then in every VFD that I've seen so far, you could delete ranges of frequency out. So that way you don't vibrate that compressor. Yeah, so typically, typically, like you know, what Kevin's stating is, is basically when you know there's a certain frequency where that compressor, those bearings just don't like. So a lot of times it'll just you know, you there most like you said, most VFDs, you can basically go through the parameters and skip that shit out. So if it's flipping out at like 47 hertz, skip that shit and turn it up because like you know you have bits or compressors that say they can go all the way up to what 80, 87 hertz. I refuse to bring them that high because I, they they sound like they're gonna come apart. <laughs> <laughs> they say that you can, though. Yeah, but uh, then when it fails, it's always liquid flood back. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, my whole thing with that is you got, you got to go through and you got to make sure that, that those frequency ranges out. Now, this is where it screws you. Say we're doing a startup in the middle of wintertime and we're only hitting 900 pounds. You may have to simulate, you know, a transcritical day, 14, 1500 pounds and run through it again to make sure you're not going to have this indu this this frequency freak out when it's got more load and more pressure on on this compressor. So I mean it's it, the load changes and then the the you could also have those those frequencies pop up randomly. Have you ever seen uh, where you actually had like you know cuz obviously whatever way that you're putting the three phase um, with a regular regular non-VFD motor, you know, they're going to spin all, all in the same direction if they're all wired all the same. Have you ever seen where you had harmonic imbalance just because the VFD just so happened to be going in a different direction than the rest of the compressors? Because the only way you can actually really prove that is with a, with a rotation indicator, right? Yeah, so I, we have had that problem. We've, we've had where compressors are, uh, you know, running backwards. Somebody changed a contactor flipped it around and we get the VFD compressor run another way and we get this nasty vibration and that even so for like DX compressors when you have like five compressors on a rack and you got three going counterclockwise and one going the other way I mean you can get a vibration in there and crack discharge lines I've seen that time and time again like guys will you'll they'll blame the compressor they'll, they'll say the compressor's bad well it's not really bad it's just it has a vibration because at a certain pressure range and it gets that that harmonics in there from going the opposite direction and it causes lines to crack yeah i've seen that happen a lot on suction lines too same thing with with uh, you know you were talking about leak mitigation right and one of the things also that could potentially be causing leaks is uh the wrong feet on compressors something as simple as that you know what i mean like i've seen racks where they came with you know metal feet 
and most of 99, 99% of the time, you get a scroll. It, what does it come with? It comes with rubber feet on the bottom. You got three lines on there, discharge, vapor injection, and, and discharge. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start cracking suction lines because that compressor's, you know, moving. And if you watch it, it doesn't really look like it's moving that far, but it's moving far enough that you'll, you know, you'll see that whole thing shake and gives that, gives that, you know, able to actually crack that line. Yeah, I mean, so far with CO2, that hasn't been that much of a problem. Um, we have had some instances where we've had to clamp lines. Uh, the low temp discharge line going into medium temp suction, we've had to support those because some of the manufacturers T-drilled those into the suction header, and we've had a lot of cracks there. So what we've done to mitigate that is we've taken strut and ran it down and put a strut foot on it and anchored it to the rack so that way that we're a little more rigid there so that way it doesn't break there. That, that's, that's probably one of the number one break spots I see. There's another thing that I did want to bring up because you know, we uh, went to a store and it just so happened to be not right, but there was a, um, the, the, the relief trees that they typically have on, on the rack. Uh, one of the things I would recommend is making sure that the actual relief itself has a hydrosorb clamp actually clamping it. Because um, imagine, I mean, if you have a, you know, a couple hundred pounds thrown out of there, and you only have it supported by the bottom of the pipe, you know, what's gonna happen? That heavy ass relief is gonna wanna kick back up and potentially break the line. So the relief won't stop. Well, I mean, it'll stop, but uh, it might be 20 feet away from the damn thing because it now broke the copper line that it was connected to. So I'm a huge proponent, which I hate the way that some of these customer specs are. Like, I think the relief should all go to a manifold and the manifold should go out of the rack and dump out outside. I mean, there should be rubber hoses linking the reliefs to the manifold. A, they're easier to change. B, it's safer for the technician to change them. And C, it's not 27 feet up in the air where that could happen, where if it if the, if the it's not supported with strut like the way they wanted it, or say something happens to the strut, it's not flinging around and, you know, going to kill somebody. Well, I've seen some of, the, some of these other contractors where they'll, they'll actually put a hole. I mean, and I, this must be spec. But, like, I've seen where, like, you know, you'll have, like, a little doghouse where you'll see all the relief lines come up and they are just in a row and just straight and supported and it just, it looks great. And you know, it's not gonna go flying off if the damn thing, you know, uh, goes to relief. Yeah, I mean, a lot a lot of the way we do our reliefs, like we we pipe them all into a manifold. Like the last couple stores we did, we did a man, nice two and an eighth manifold inside and uh, we piped all the reliefs into it and then we dumped it outside. That, well, all right, and that relief, you, you're making that uh, HXP? No. No. Just 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 normal copper. Oh, because that, that's, the, oh, you're, you're, oh, okay, so all the reliefs are going into this one manifold, so it, at that point it's at atmospheric, right? Yeah. Now, does, I know some uh, some con, or, uh, some uh, stores are, are having us put in pre-reliefs. Uh, there was one particular one where they basically have a liquid line solenoid that goes into an SDR, and, you know, basically when that thing, uh, it's a, it, it's essentially called it's a call to pre-relief. So if the the flash tank one is set for 650, the mechanical, they'll have this one set for like 590, 600 psi, and basically if, if it does relief, it starts opening up that that SDR valve. Now I will recommend um, do not allow that tra that valve to travel uh, all the way up to uh, its full range. You know I think the the one that I saw was had 6386 steps. And if it has a step rate of 200 steps per second, it, that means it would take thir you know 32 seconds for that thing to fully open and then fully close. Well, hey, there's the problem. By the time that you actually get to two steps, you probably now already released that pressure. 
So, you know, maybe, maybe you know, restricting that valve not to be able to open up all the way 100%, maybe, you know, giving it a max of, you know, 15, 20, 30%. You just got to kind of play with it and see what happens. Um, they also typically put a liquid line solenoid in there right before. So because you're coming off the flash tank, you might have a little bit of, of, of saturated vapor. You'll have a little bit of, uh, of wet liquid or wet vapor. Um, so what could potentially happen at the relief? That ice could, could potentially stick in there and, and uh, cause the valve not to fully close. Hence why they, they like putting the, uh, the solenoid right before that, that SCR valve. I absolutely hate that setup because I've seen it twice now where it's dumped the charge because ice has gotten in the dry ice has gotten into the solenoid and the SDR. Really? I yeah. see, I've never I've never seen it where it actually got into the solenoid. Like I, I would rather not have that. I mean I, I don't think it does what what they say it's gonna do. And here's the deal, like if they put a battery backup power supply on there and they were powering that and they were using that to like mitigate the charge, but that particular customer doesn't use a battery backup power supply and there's no battery backup to run that, so what's the point of even having it at that point? No. Anything else you want to talk about about mitigation? No, it's starting to get loud in here, so I think we're going to you know, call today. All right, guys. Hey, listen, thanks for listening once again. Uh, have fun. We'll talk to you guys later.